over the last um, over the last number of weeks, our staff team and our church, um, many members, we've been going through a lot of spiritual warfare. And the message that I have pressed today is birthed out of that. Um, and if if God is as sovereign as I know he is, then I know that our staff team and certain members of our church are not the only ones who are hurting in this room today. So what I want to do today is I want to deliver a message to you that the Lord gave to me from a place of suffering. Um, so please keep our staff and, and our members in your prayers constantly. Um, because the enemy is a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Um, but um, as one of our staff members said this week, we refuse to give him the joy of doubting God's goodness. Um, so we are going to persevere. And I ask that you please pray for us and pray for me as I uh, try to get through this message without crying the entire time. Um, over the past few weeks... Um, as you know, we've been in a series called Created, um, and we've been exploring the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, and we've been trying to answer the age-old question that asks, what is my purpose in life? What are we all here for? Why do I exist? These are e obviously enormous questions, right? I mean, they're huge. In the Bible, as Bible-believing people, we don't leave this up to chance. We search the scriptures to give us answers to what might be life's biggest question. And as we've been talking about this idea, it's easy in our day to confuse, as Pastor Spence mentioned numerous times, it's easy for us to confuse our passion for our purpose. Our purpose is what we exist for, and passions are the things that excite us. Now, passions are right, and they're important, and they're good to have. Uh, I have a lot of passions, but passions must grow uh, from out of our purpose in life, not the other way around. So when we don't know our purpose, it's easy to allow our passions to become the very thing that we give our lives to and that our identity gets thrown at. And, this, and what I'm excited this morning is, is I think that we need to see from the scriptures the unfathomable reality of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And it is from this foundation that I think that we build our identities as followers of Jesus. And y'all, I'll be honest, I think we desperately need this this morning. Like I said earlier, over the past few weeks, the Lord has been stirring something in my, my own heart, in our staff's heart, in many of our members' hearts that I think we all need to hear. Too many of us are going day after day believing lies about who we are in Christ. Too many of us forget what God has actually said about who we are. And we get in all sorts of trouble when we forget. When we forget, we believe lies. It leads to worry. It leads to anxiety. It leads to bad conclusions and a false sense of reality of what's actually true. And church, I'm preaching to you this morning as much as I am to myself. And this morning, I have an aim where my aim is I want to simply remind you of who God says that you are. And to do that, we're going to be in one of the richest passages in all of the Bible. So if you, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. Uh, if you will turn to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 8. And as we walk through Romans chapter 8, I will be focusing on a certain section of that chapter. 
We'll be focusing on on, uh, verses 15 through 39. So listen, I'm under no illusion that I'll be able to pull out everything in this text. Uh, But as we survey this passage, I promise one thing. The Apostle Paul's words in this passage are clear. They're compelling. And I promise you, if you let it enter your heart, they are life-changing. And as we survey this enormously important chapter... I'm going to be moving pretty quickly, so keep that Bible open. Keep ready, Get ready to follow along um, because the Lord has a lot to share with us this morning. Let me pray really quickly before we dive in. God, we love you. God, I need you this morning. And Lord, I can sense that our church needs this word this morning. I know that there are many of us that have forgotten what you have said about us. So, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you help us to see clearly. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, in 15 through 39, I believe that there are two major things that I think Paul wants to show us in these verses. And they're kind of divided in two ways. So, 15 through 25... I believe that Paul is trying to show us how to live as children of God. I believe that Paul is trying to show us in 15 through 25 how to live as children of God. And the second thing I think he's trying to show us is in in verses 26 through 39. And that's how to face life with confidence. And that's how to face life with confidence. So to start, let me catch you up on what Paul has been talking about. Uh, about in this book up till now. And in chapter 7, we see Paul showing Christian that Christians still wrestle every day with indwelling sin. He says uh, at one point, but the things I, that I want to, that I keep doing are the things that I, I, the things that I hate are the things that I keep on doing all the time. The things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things I hate are the things that I keep finding myself doing. And we see that even though Christians sin, as Paul's modeling, there's, there is a growing hatred of our sin. Tim Keller says that the fact that Christians struggle with sin um, but hate the sin that they commit keeps us from either legalism, which says real Christians don't struggle with sin anymore, or the permissiveness attitude, which says real Christians are human, they sin just like anybody else, therefore our sin is really not that big of a deal, and we can kind of sweep it under a rug. Well, we also see in verse 722, uh, chapter 7, verse 22, that the Spirit of God has come in and transformed us in our inner being. So we actually, we so Christians desire to live holy lives, but our sinful nature is still strong enough to keep us from what our new desires actually want. That's the story of every Christian, right? Like, we want to live holy lives, but our sin keeps dragging us down. And at the end of chapter 7, Paul, in summarizing just how he feels about all this, he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his own question by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who saved him from his sins. And then we see one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible in Romans 8.1. And it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This word condemnation is a legal term that says, for the Christian, God has condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son 
to pay the penalty for our sin through his death on the cross. It's with this verse that we can cry out, we are forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Praise be to God. And then for the next 13 verses, Paul shows us that indwelling sin is overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit that now resides in the believer. We were once unable to resist sin, but through the power of the Spirit, we now have the ability to resist it. Amazing. Amazing. And now we get to the passage that that I I feel like the Lord wants for us this morning, and that starts in, in verse 15. And this is that section, if you remember, if you want to write this in the in the column of your Bible, how to live as children of God. That's what I feel like, um, that's what I feel like Paul is trying to show us, how to live as children of God. Let me read verse 15. And I'm in the ESV version this morning. And here's what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. At salvation, we received the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of fear. Too often, Christians fall back into this spirit of slavery that Paul talks about, which leads us to fear, specifically fearing God when we shouldn't fear God. The Holy Spirit wipes out any desire to turn God into a slave master or our boss. And as Christians, we need to live not in fear of God or of our sin. Because God has accomplished, Jesus has accomplished that for us and he has saved us. And instead of the spirit of fear, Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption Through Christ, we have gone from enemy to son or daughter. Church, this is a massive thing for us to understand. When we look at what we were created for, we were created to relate to God, not from a position of a fearful slave, but from the position of son or daughter. And these two realities are what we fall into almost every day. Because listen, a slave obeys under compulsion. A son or a daughter obeys out of their love for their dad. A slave works for fear of punishment, but but for a son or a daughter, discipline is loving instruction. A slave is insecure and scared to slip up, but a son or a daughter has the security of their daddy's love. A slave is consumed with external compliance but a son is con- or a daughter is concentrated simply on their relationship with God. A slave has to work and work and work, but is given no honor. But a son or a daughter is honored and then invited to join into God's work. That is a big difference. We live as children of God when we don't fall back into this spirit of slavery. Church, fight to remember that you are a son and a daughter of God. He has done everything necessary to save you. Fight to believe that every day. If you noticed, um, 
At the end of this verse, it says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba is an Aramaic word, and it might actually better be translated as Daddy. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed to God and said, dear Daddy? Sometimes in the English language, that word Father seems so distant to us. It seems formal. Now, yes, we need to revere God. We need to honor him for he is holy. But in this imagery, and we see that he has called us sons and daughters. And what do sons and daughters feel free to do with their dad? They feel free to crawl in his lap and tell him what's going on. If the idea of praying daddy to God is weird, I want to ask you this week to try and practice that because it might break up the stony heart that you have possibly toward our father. And then we move on to verses 16 and 17 and we see the inheritance that we have in Christ. So we've seen that we are adopted into this family, but in 16 and 17, we see the inheritance that we have in Christ And here's what it says. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This simply means that the spirit confirms to the believer that we are his. Now, there's some debate as what what the fullness of this verse might mean. But I think it means exactly what it says here. I don't think it's all that confident. Uh, uh, I don't think it's all that confusing. The Spirit testifies to us that we are God's children. The Spirit gives us assurance of our salvation. And I think this largely comes from how the Spirit interacts with us on a daily basis. The Spirit is called the Comforter. The Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit gives us direction. The Spirit illuminates the Word of God. And when we see those things present in our life, it's a reminder that, yes, we are a child of God. So the Spirit testifies that we are His children. And 17 explains the inheritance that we have in Christ. And listen to this. If we are children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's amazing. In glory, we will receive the inheritance of honored children of the king. And we'll see more about this in the verses to come, so I won't spoil it. But don't miss the ending of this verse. Let's read 17 again. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You might be asking, what in the world does that mean? Well, in 16 and 17, it seems like Paul is giving us two evidences of those who are God's children. The first being the indwelling spirit that testifies of our salvation and that we are children of God. And the second evidence is that we suffer with him. That's not a popular verse in American Christianity. Provided that we suffer with him. A sign of someone who knows God is that they are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
To the Christian, we know that a call to follow Christ is a call to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow him every day, as Matthew 16 says. When Jesus said this, he explicitly meant that suffering would just be a part of the deal. It's a package deal for the Christian. This is why we ask people at our church when we baptize them, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then will you go wherever he tells you to go? And will you do whatever he tells you to do? We want people to understand that God might call them to do things that do not make sense to our earthly world. And it might cost them their very life and their comfort. Taking risks for God, for Jesus, for the Christian should be like breathing. It's normal. Now, I know it's not for us, but it should be. For Paul, suffering was a part of the deal. That's what, when he gave his life to Jesus, that's what it meant. If you remember Paul, when he got saved, what did, what did Jesus say to Paul? I must now show you how much you must suffer for my name. We're all called to that. I know that's not fun to hear. But y'all, there is a special kind of joy when we suffer for our king. When we take risks for God that our world says is dumb. When we go to places like the Amazon rainforest where there's triple UPGs, people who are unreached, unengaged, uncontacted, never talked to by the outside world. When we go after them to the Christian, that makes sense. But that's going to cost us comfort. Our families are going to call us crazy. But to the Christian, it makes sense. Look what Paul says next in 18. As he looks at suffering, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed in us. Y'all, our suffering for the sake of Christ is eternally worth it. Every single time we suffer for the Lord, it is worth it. Because we have a glory awaiting us that our Father will one day give us, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a big deal. But for many of us, we let the approval of man or the desire for money or comfort sway us from the joy of suffering for the sake of Christ. One of my favorite Christians in history, his name was Jim Elliott. Uh, my son is named after him. And here's what he said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. By that, he has an eternal perspective. We can't keep all of our stuff, right? All of our stuff, as one pastor said it, is all the stuff of future yard sales. Why do we hold on to these things? Why do we find security there? But we need to give these things up at times to gain the things that we cannot lose. Anything we lose for the sake of Christ in our lifetime is not even worth comparing to what we have awaiting for us in glory. 
Paul will comment more on this later. All right, so as we move uh, to the next part, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through uh, verses 19 through 25. And what we see here is an illustration of some of this kind of suffering that Paul's alluding to. Um, but this kind of suffering comes simply from being a part of the world that we live in now. So let me read this section in full, and then we're gonna walk through it a little bit. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not, willing beca- not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons and for the redemptions of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is seen, is not, I'm sorry. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So remember, Paul is talking to us about how we are to live as God's children. And these six verses are a description of what we are all living in right now. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, we see that all of creation is groaning and longing for an eternity and for, the, uh, for, eternity and for the pain of this world to end. At the fall of Adam and Eve, the world was flipped on its head. What was once a paradise is now a place of thorns and thistles that accompany our jobs, which makes all of our work really difficult. We see this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. We see the pain in childbirth for the woman, and we see a world full of brokenness. We see a world full of brokenness. Everywhere we look, a world full of brokenness. As you might have seen in in Pittsburgh, we saw um, a synagogue be shot up. by someone that is that's evil it's wrong the world is groaning in church just really quickly any bigotry racism or racial supremacy has no place in the kingdom of god none And at Mercy Church, we are going to fight tooth and nail until Jesus comes back against that kind of a spirit. That is a sign of this groaning that we see constantly. And in these verses, we see that there are also two things that Paul kind of specifically mentions. He mentions creation, and he also mentioned man who is groaning. Let's look at verses 22, 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan inwardly as we await for the, eagerly, for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. That is an interesting metaphor. Here's what it means. Creation... Like a mother in childbirth knows that this present suffering that she's in right now giving birth 
of a child, she knows, she knows one thing. She's in a lot of pain, right? She's in a lot of pain. And all the mothers in this room know what that means. But this pain is not purposeless, and, it's, and it comes with a future hope. A mother can bear the pain of childbirth because she knows that, he, that on the other side of this pain awaits her sweet child. And you'll notice Paul says, until now. Well, what does this mean? Let's keep reading. He answers his own question, or he answers his own comment in the next verse. He says, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This means that people also groan for the completion of God's saving work. But you might be asking yourself, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were talking to Christians. Haven't we been saved? Haven't we been adopted? Well, as believers here, we live in this kind of already not yet reality. And when, and when Paul says that Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit, he means that their adoption has already been secured in a legal sense, and we currently enjoy the privileges of being children of God, like we have a relationship with God, we know that our sins have been saved, uh, we have the indwelt Holy Spirit, but there are privileges that we have not yet received also, namely the redemption of our bodies and one day the restoration of the world. And y'all, one day... I don't have to feel like when I wake up in the morning, like there's an ice pick sticking out of my neck when I get out of bed. And also one day, I won't sound like Darth Vader when I sleep because of my sleep apnea mask. And trust me, fellas, ain't nothing sexy about a man sleeping in an apnea mask, I promise you. But all joking aside, it's just hard to live here sometimes. It's just hard to live here. And that's because things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. Things were messed up at the fall. But look at Paul's next few verses, for in this hope we were saved. In verse 25, he says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As Christians, we know that this hope, the hope of this return of God, that we are adopted as sons, that God will restore us, we can eagerly await that with patience even though our world is groaning and we are groaning ourselves. So this is in those sections of verses, we just saw how we live as children of God, remembering that we are children of God. We're not slaves. And then in 26 through 39, Paul shows us how to face this life with confidence in light of that verse 19 through 25 reality. And y'all, Paul transitions in a pretty incredible way. And I'll be honest with you guys, things are about to get wild in this passage. Paul starts bringing truths that the church has been worshiping with for thousands of years. And what I'm going to do is I'm not really going to comment too much on the rest of these verses. I want us all to collectively worship as we walk through this passage. So if you want to hoop and holler, if you want to dance, if you want to sing, whatever you want to do, we, I want to give glory to God because it, he is worth his glory this morning. Verse 26, it says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. 
So Paul's telling us that in light of this 19 through 25 reality, things are hard. We are still sinners and we don't know always what to pray for like we should. Sometimes we pray for the wrong things when we should pray for something different and we don't really know how we ought to pray. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That is Oh, man, that's so encouraging to me. Y'all, when I don't know what to pray, sometimes when I'm hurting or sometimes when I'm confused, it's I sit down at my bed or I sit down at my desk, and I don't know what to pray for, but I've got confidence that the Spirit intercedes for me when I don't know what to pray for. Church, that is good news. That is good news. And he does it with deep groanings. Why? Because he loves his children. Verse 27, and he searches the hearts. He searches hearts and knows what the knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit, this is insane. The spirit intercedes for the saints, for the church, according to the will of God. If you've read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we have been predestined for good works that we should walk in them. So when we don't know what to pray for, not only is the Spirit of God interceding for us, but the Spirit of God is interceding for us for the will of God to happen, which he's sovereign and he already knows what's going to happen. Can you imagine that God, the Spirit of God, is praying for what he already knows is going to happen in your life? Man, that is comforting. That should give you so much freedom to not worry and fret about the future. Trust him. 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is looking back at that 19 through 25 reality again. He's saying that all things, even though this is hard, all these things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on and says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Don't get weirded out by that word predestined. It just means to know beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Well, that means he saved. And those whom he justified or those who he saved, he will glorify. One day we will be in glory with him. Sealed. Done. For the Christian, that is the hope that you have. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He says in 31, what shall we say to these things? If those things are true, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him, us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How could we think at any moment, at any time, that God is holding out on us? If he gave his son for you, he's not going to withhold blessing from you. If he gave his son for you, he's not going to withhold gifts for you. He wants your good. He wants his glory ultimately, but it's going to work. Because he's good, he's going to work for you. 
Why? Because you're his child. And because of that, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So when the enemy lies about who you are in Christ, there is no charge that the enemy can bring to you that is true. Why? Because you are a son or a daughter. No lie, no betrayal, nothing that happens to you because of the enemy. No charge can be brought against you because it is God who saves. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. It's about to get crazier, y'all. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So not only do we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us according to the will of God that he already knows is going to happen, according to Ephesians 2, we also see that Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of God, he is also interceding for us. We've got the triune God, the Trinity, praying on your behalf when you don't know what to pray for. When you are suffering, when you are hurting, and you don't even have the words to come out of your mouth, The Spirit intercedes for you. Jesus intercedes for you. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what in the world will. That is good news, church. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword, For it is written, all for your sake, all the day long we are being slaughtered as sheep. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul wraps this section up by saying, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is at work in Jesus Christ our Lord. Y'all, he loves us. And some of you are fighting that love today. You might be mad at him, you might be frustrated with him, and as David modeled for us in the Psalms, y'all, it is okay to be frustrated. Why? Because this world is hard. But I beg of you, don't let this world lead you to distrust of our Father. This might be the most beautiful passage in the Bible. But Paul, as I close this morning, I want to show you how Paul goes into this next chapter. This will be really brief. But this is important. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. It's probably not going to be on the screen. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. So he wishes he would be cut off from Christ, even though he just mentioned the most beautiful things I've ever read in the Bible anywhere. Why? For the sake of my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's, he, for the sake of his people who do not know God, he has anguish because of their lostness. Church, how can we look at this? How could we see the benefits of God and not walk across the street to our neighbors? How can we not go after our world? There are billions of people with limited access to the gospel. How can we not go to them? There are people in your cubicles, in your offices, your family that you've known for years, but you've let fear drown out the goodness of this truth. And church, I beg of you, don't let it go another day. This life is a vapor. People are leaving us every day. And we have the only hope that they have. And that hope isn't a life, the perfect life of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for us, and his resurrection. And if we turn from our sins, we too might be saved. And they might be saved. Let me close this in prayer. God, I pray God, we needed that word. Lord, I know I needed it. God, so often I let things and my circumstances drown out what I know to be true. I know that when I put my faith in you, that things would be hard. I knew that when I put my faith in you, that things wouldn't be perfect. But Lord, I'm nearsighted and I forget the gospel. And Lord, if any of these people are like me, they forget the gospel too. Lord, I pray that we do not forget ever again. Help us, Lord that you call us sons and you call us daughters. That you love us. And that we get the benefits of being called sons and daughters here. But not only that, this groaning that we experience right now is temporary. And one day when we are in glory and we see you face to face. God, what a day that will be. God, we long for you to come come back. But Lord, until that moment, God, I pray that our flaming hearts for you will produce flaming tongues and we will tell everybody about the good news of Jesus. Lord, help us. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.